And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher, and as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher, and I've been at it for 16 years. We both have been in the field of education for almost two decades, and um, that's why you are in the right place for news and analysis of all things related to education here on All of the Above. We appreciate those of you who are listening to the podcast version of our episode. Please remember to rate us and review us because that makes a big difference when it comes to the uh, algorithms and such as we pop up in people's search feed and recommended listening feeds. If you're watching on YouTube, thank you for tuning in. Please hit that subscribe button real quick. And um, Jeff, you know, as a teacher, one of the most common questions I get from students is, uh, what are we learning today? So Jeff, what is on today's agenda? Well, Manuel, as usual, we got a good one for folks. Uh, today, we're gonna, of course, dig into our headlines first and our do now. We have some fascinating stories, uh, in particular, coming out of our home state of California, mm. um, but with national implications. Of course. And for our main segment today, I'm, I'm personally excited about this one uh, on like a real deep personal level uh, because you're going to get to learn a little bit more about uh, the two of us through um, through stories of our favorite teachers Ooh. right so we're going to talk about who's your favorite teacher why was that person your favorite teacher and what that has to do with education and and teaching today yeah, looking forward to it. I definitely have a lot to say about my favorite teacher. Um, but before we get to that, of course, let's get to today's headlines in the segment that we like to call the Do Now. All right, folks, now it's time for the Do Now. Let's take a look at some of these headlines in education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, uh, today we have a pop quiz. Pop quiz? Thinking caps on, folks. Thinking caps on. Man, I did not prepare for this quiz. Study? Am I going to be able to retake it? Can nope. I retake it? Nope. nope. What? Nope. Should have pulled on them bootstraps and then you'd be doing all right. Man. Okay. Bootstraps. <laughs> all right. Jeff, what's the first pop quiz question for us? All right, man. Well, here we go. Pop quiz. What considers itself progressive, but just ain't cutting it by any measure when you lift up the hood? Ooh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I don't know. I don't know, Jeff. Well, Manuel, uh, if you had done your studying, you would know that the answer is the state of California, I uh, at least when it comes to funding of its public schools. Mm. Now, uh, folks around the country uh, have this you know, big, bold impression of California as like the bastion of progressive policy. And there are certain places in which that is true. Mm -hmm. uh, education is just not one of them. Um, so California school districts uh, need to significantly increase their education spending by an average of about $4,686 per student per year Ooh. in order to ensure that students have adequate resources and support to provide um, uh, enough for students to actually achieve the standards and the goals that the state has set for its public schools. Now that's a whopping 38% increase in per pupil spending, amounting to about 25.6 billion, with a B, dollars per year. 
Now this all is according to a recent article uh, in EdSource, which profiled an American Institutes for Research study, which was actually done back in 2018 and published uh, by Stanford University. So now what, we have some, some huge numbers here, right? Yeah. Um, and those of us in California in education have known for a long time that uh, spending is just not sufficient for right. the needs and the complexities that, uh, that we have in our communities. Um, but these are some big numbers. What, uh, what do you think, Emmanuel? Yeah, well, I mean, on the one hand, it's not totally surprising because, I mean, I think just across the country, education isn't funded to the level it needs to be. But um, to hear that California is this far off is is a bit surprising to me. Um, you know, having taught in California for my entire career, so 16 years teaching in California, uh, for sure, I've seen a lot of need for additional resources for students, especially students who um, are dealing with um, adverse challenges um, at home or, or, or just in, in all kinds of ways. So for example, a lot of California high schools have maybe one counselor for every four or 500 students, and that's just not gonna cut it, especially in this day and age with the rising rates of anxiety and depression and, and all the, all the um, impacts of, of just living in an increasingly loud, noisy, connected world, and a world where the expectation to go to college and the need to go to college in order to have a career in which you could actually afford to live in California, that need is through the roof. So, and you know, that's just one case of like, we need more money for more counselors to help guide and support our students because teachers obviously can't do it all. Um, but man, this is a, a tremendous figure. I mean, 4,000, what was it? $4,686 per student per year is like a big jump. Um, I don't know where that's coming from or where that would come from. Rich people. Rich people. Corporations. Corporations. You know, Silicon Valley. That is plenty of dough. Plenty of dough. And it's time we, uh, you know, redistribute to the people. Um, you know, I will say that uh, when you when you read these numbers and you hear these numbers now, they sound huge, right? right? And it sounds like how will we ever get there? But what we don't think about is California is near the bottom of the country. We're down there with Mississippi, Arkansas, it's right? Never, like never a good thing to every, be. Everybody be hates Mississippi. on Mississippi all the time, but that's because Mississippi got problems, it, man. It does, and for us to be in the same conversation as Mississippi, yes. that's not something that makes me uh right. California is one of the wealthiest states in the country. If it was its own country, it would right. be one of the wealthiest countries in yeah. the world. Fifth largest economy or whatever they say. Right. And we have intentionally starved our public schools. And this is from bottom to top, right? right. Uh, Pre-K and daycare programs to UC Berkeley and UCLA, right? right. And the, the fanciest public universities that we have. Uh, you know, there was a time, right? In the, um, in the mid 20th century, even as late as into the, the early 70s, when California was really the, the crown jewel of public education right. in the United States. And with the, you know, um, the legislation to cap property taxes. Yeah. Prop and, 13, all that. And prevent education funding from keeping pace with costs and rising expectations, we have systematically starved our public schools and by extension harmed the kids and communities that are most reliant on our public schools for support and yeah. services, right? And so we created this problem yeah. and it sounds like a big problem now, but you know, sometimes when you when you make your, uh, your bed, you gotta lie in it, right? Right. Um, so yeah, we need, I mean, to, we need to raise taxes. We need to increase revenue to spend on education. 
Yeah, and then when you think about the the cost of not doing this, so how much is, is it costing our state to not accurately prepare every single student for success in the future? You know, those costs pile up. When we look at the prison system in California, we're talking about $26,000 a year per prisoner, and that's a ginormous amount of money, and ginormous is, is going to be much, my word of the day. Much more than we spend much on we spend kids in school. On kids in school, and a lot of that could have been prevented if folks had been adequately prepared in school to succeed and, and to um, transition into a career and um, avoid the life choices that might end up with one being in prison in the first place. And, um, you know, this being the home of Silicon Valley, I mean, I, I'm, Jeff, I'm sure all these big tech companies fully pay their taxes and, 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 oh, and proudly, you know, contribute to the state <laughs> that is, you know, their home. Right? Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. 100% sure. Uh, one small bit, perhaps, of, mm -hmm. of silver lining coming out about this story is that there are some real efforts, uh, both in Sacramento and mm -hmm. statewide, to help move the needle on this issue. So, um, for one, there has been some increase in funding over the last few years right. um, with some uh, propositions that have helped raise additional funding for schools. The challenge has been that expenses also rise at the same time, particularly yeah. with an aging teaching force and a growing number of folks who are either retiring now or about to right. retire and rises in pension costs. So it's been difficult to know whether though that increased funding is actually uh, resulting in us being in a better place, right, uh, relatively speaking, or if we're still just as behind as we were. Um, but interestingly enough, on the November 2020 ballot, we are expecting uh, a measure uh, to be on the ballot uh, for the people of California to decide if we want to um, do some additional taxation, in particular of corporations, property right. taxation on corporations, that would help raise about $11 billion a year of this $25.6 billion gap. So that'd be a big step, not yet sufficient, but certainly yeah. a big step in getting California from the bottom of the bottom to someplace more respectable. Right. Man, 41st in the nation. Yeah. World's fifth largest economy, but ranking 41st in the nation when it comes to per pupil spending. That's a problem. Yeah. All right. So next quiz question for today's Do Now. Let's see. I'm going to quiz you on this one, Jeff. Okay. All right. I'm ready. Here we Let's go. Let's see. All right. What's wet? Absolutely necessary and might poison your kids. Uh, I mean, Kool-Aid sometimes. Hey, <laughs> Kool-Aid is delicious, delicious Jeff. Man, but it's got to be bad for you, right? Anything that's sure that, that's, that comes you. in bright blue and bright green I mean, and bright red, red the at best, the same though, time. But. I mean, yeah, true, true. <laughs> I miss I miss the Kool-Aid man breaking through the wall oh, in the yeah, commercials. Man. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. he's passionate, man. He's <laughs> but right. but the stuff is poison, let's be real. Alright, so this story is not about Kool-Aid, okay. and we definitely don't need Kool-Aid or whatever company owns Kool-Aid coming after us. Yeah, um uh, allegedly poisonous. Allegedly, there we go. <laughs> Delicious though. I grew up on it. Didn't eat great. Um actually the answer to this quiz question is the drinking water in about mm. one out of every five California public schools because of detectable levels of lead. A July 2019 story from CBS 13 in Sacramento. Shout out Sacramento, all my Sacktown peeps. That story from CBS 13 detailed that the state water board released data showing that 20% of the schools in the state have drinking water with detectable levels of lead. Now, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, there is no safe level of lead, 
But the wider board confirms so far 1,166 schools across the state have drinking water with over five parts per billion of lead. That is detectable, and that is, uh, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, not a safe level of lead. Not a good look. So law requires schools to take action if they find over 15 parts per billion. They have to remove the tap from service and also notify parents. But the law doesn't specify how to notify parents. And in many cases, it appears schools are posting it somewhere on their website where you'd only see it if you knew what to look for. However, as of September, many of those schools had not yet released their testing results to the state. Jeff, what do you think about this story of detectable levels of lead in California schools? Well, I find this story um, both not surprising because uh, I think, you know, as we uh, as anyone who follows uh, like Aaron Brockovich on uh, Facebook <laughs> or Twitter, uh, it, it's a particularly fascinating and terrifying experience uh, to read about all of these places, big cities, small towns, you know, right. rural areas, suburban areas, uh, where we have massive issues with drinking water contamination across the country. And some of these hit the news, right? The big algae blooms in Florida right. and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And Flint, of course, uh, which deserves big attention. But the, the almost bigger story is all of the other places across the country where this is happening and it, it barely hits the news at all, right? Like the whole city of Newark, uh, you know, could water contaminated with lead and it hardly hit the national headlines, yeah. right? So, um, so it's not surprising from that front. On the other hand, it is like deeply infuriating, right? As yeah. an educator, as someone who sometimes drinks the water in, in yeah. schools across the country, right? It's a, it's a terrifying scene in the back of my head. And also as someone who cares about children and young people, which I don't think is a revolutionary idea. <laughs> I don't want them poisoned with yeah. lead at school, right? Yeah. Um, so the idea that we, we know this, we have known this, and there is not the type of emergency management response that you would expect, that we are literally seeing right now in the state of California with fires that are like yeah. 10 miles away from here, right? Yeah. Um, where, you know, we're getting federal money and the senators are there taking pictures with the fire chief and all, like, right. folks wanna do something, but we're not seeing that type of reaction to, uh, to this issue, which is sort of a slow, silent yeah. killer, and one that particularly affects uh, poor, black and brown kids right so the combination of this is, is just infuriating to me yeah and we just mentioned in our previous story about the the need to increase funding to get california schools um at an adequate level in order to meet all the standards and in, in, in requirements and expectations and i don't know necessarily if that particular particular study took into account something like this like the fact that um schools across the state are gonna you know if they want to be proactive about this have to install water filters because the reality is a lot of this lead is coming not just necessarily from the school building or school facilities themselves, but you know all the the water mains that have been you know buried under the city for for decades. And you know anybody who's purchased a home in California or anywhere else knows that you know uh, you know homes get flipped and turned and, and you install new piping and all that stuff. And you could have the best newest stuff, but that doesn't necessarily mean the water coming out of the tap is is clean because a lot of it happens further on down the line and no matter what you do at your your household. So in the case of schools, I mean this is a 
installing water filters type of situation. Right underneath my classroom, the uh, first floor of our building, we have a water filter there for students to take their bottles and, um, and get um, fresh, clean water. And that sounds like a, a first step, at least, in terms of making sure that uh, schools across the, the state have clean water and uh, clean water filters for their students. But really, this is probably something that's so much bigger than probably a lot of people realize in terms of what it'll take to get any state up to modern standards in terms of dealing with the uh, the old infrastructure that we have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is just one of those issues where, uh, at a certain level, your wealth and privilege can no longer protect you. Right. right. When we don't have clean water, when we run out of clean water, like you know, we can't drink our money. Right. So yet, we, I'm sure they're developing a way in yes. Silicon Valley. <laughs> someone's, work, someone's working on that. The, the drinkable $20 yes. bill. Uh, yes. So uh, <laughs> oh my I'm just saying this. Uh, oh, America's a wonderful place. Okay. Uh, so, you know, it, it it boils down to something, I think, that that simple. Right. Yeah. Like having access to clean water is one of the most fundamental human rights that exists. Right. Right after like life right right and so we cannot live without water we all deserve clean water children especially deserve clean water and so this is one of those things where from my end i say like okay whatever it costs we need to fix right like there right. is no alternative than addressing this type of issue and yet we see such minimal action from our uh yeah. you know from our elected officials so uh disturbing story for sure all right, so, so far we have, we don't have enough money, the water's poisoned. Jeff, what's the third story for this do now? We're uh, buying an island <laughs> somewhere <laughs> and disappearing. Uh, okay, no, um, our third and final uh, question for today's pop quiz, Manuel, is, it's a good one, I, I dig this one. Um, what is brilliant, black, and here to save the kids? Oh, I mean, Jeff, finally we have a, a quiz question about yours truly, uh, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. Uh -huh. um, I don't know. I, I, I want to go ahead and say myself. I, uh, so, um, yes, uh, and... Uh, uh, <laughs> be honest, Jeff, be honest. And California's new Surgeon General, uh, who is Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. Wow. Far more yeah. brilliant than I, let me she's, just say that. I mean, she's a beast, man. Yeah. I, I, I love uh, what I've read about her. Uh, she's, she's incredible. So, uh, California is lucky enough to have its first ever Surgeon General, so that's exciting. Um, and she was appointed earlier this year, and frankly, she's no joke. Um, she is Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who was the founder and CEO uh, of the Center for Youth Wellness in San Francisco. Um, and some of you may have heard of her before. She actually had a big piece on NPR profiling her work uh, maybe a year or two ago. We'll link that on the um, website. Check yeah, it out. So she's uh, just been doing incredible work and, and excited to see her kind of ascend to a more um, statewide leadership position. Now, after a career spent trying to change the ways in which society responds to childhood trauma and exposure to ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, which of course is something we talked a lot about on this show back in season two. We did a whole episode on trauma-informed education. Um, and Dr. Uh, Burke Harris has spent her whole career working on understanding these adverse childhood experiences and how society can better work with people who have experienced a lot of trauma and ACEs. Um, and she has an ambitious new vision for how to set policies that could have broad impact on how schools interact with children who've experienced childhood trauma. 
So the plan basically involves screening every student uh, for childhood trauma before they enter school and then sending them to school with uh, essentially a care plan. So something from their pediatrician uh, that say a school nurse would get that says, you know, here's the care plan for this child's toxic stress, which is typically the result of students who have a lot of adverse childhood experiences, and here's how it shows up. And that's important, Manuel, because as we both know as educators, a lot of times physical symptoms or even emotional and behavioral symptoms that can seem um, problematic uh, in the learning process. So repeated stomach aches, lots of problems with asthma attacks, headaches, uh, being tired all the time, right? Um, anxiety. Uh, acting out physically towards others, right? right. Um, we often interpret it as just bad behavior from a kid, um, but it also are telling the story of students who are dealing with toxic stress, right? right? And are dealing with lots of trauma. So really interesting idea. Manuel, uh, you're a classroom teacher. You see the, uh, you know, the sort of adolescent and teenage manifestations Indeed. of this uh, on a daily basis. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think it's a great idea, um, but it's not without its challenges. So first of all, I mean, it's a fantastic idea. Um, you know, as we as science moves quick in terms of adding to our understanding of trauma and the impact of trauma on learning, for example, it's important that we keep up. And one thing that we do know is that the better informed we are in order to um, present practices that are healing and supportive of students who are dealing with trauma, um, the, then the better the outcomes are going to be for that student, both academically and just personally in all kinds of different ways. Um, however, this is going to be a, a huge challenge. First of all, we talked about funding in the first story. And in this plan, then the school nurse would receive a care plan um, from, a, from a physician who's who screened the child. So in terms of access to health care so that every single student could have, um, every single kid in California could have a physician who is capable of doing uh, doing this in a, in, a, in a way that is actually helpful because a lot of times the trauma, if it's especially if it's trauma um, resulting in things that are happening at home, um, parents might not be super helpful in helping identify those, those ACEs that a student might be dealing with because obviously the parent um, themselves might be a source of trauma. Um, so you're going to need really skilled physicians that uh, in access to physicians for all these uh, kids across California. But then school nurses, I mean, a lot of schools have a nurse like on certain days of the week or um, don't have a nurse at all. I mean, there have been years in my 16 years in California where I've been at a school site that just didn't have a nurse. So if I'm a nurse at a school um, that is um, dealing with a, a really high needs population, then I might need some additional support because I'm getting a ton of care plans for all these different students and what I can't do is just drop the care plan off in a teacher's box and hope for everything to work off uh, work out well because a teacher being aware of, of the ACE scores ACE scores of all the students in the classroom actually doesn't really do a whole lot if the student if the teacher hasn't been prepared and what to do about that um, also so there's there's levels that are of preparation that are going to be needed in terms of supporting teachers, getting the right um, amount of nurses and funding for nurses, and then making sure all these kids have access to quality health care. So it's not without its challenges, yeah. but that's no reason not to pursue it because, I mean, it's, it's going to take work, but obviously that's, it's a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, I think you're you're right. And was as with all public policy, implementation is really, you know, right. what makes or breaks uh, whether it's going to be effective or not. Um, I, I love this idea because I think it's an important first step towards changing the, the narrative and um, and the ripple effect of that, of what uh, negative student behaviors 
that cause issues in school or that interfere with the student's be ability to be successful in school, what they mean and yeah. therefore what our response should be, right? right. So, um, of course, we need, you know, uh, infrastructure, behaviors, attitudes to shift in line with this. Right. And I don't think uh, Dr. Burke Harris is, you know, expecting like, uh, <laughs> we passed this and now everything's fine, right? right. Um, but, but I think she's really thinking of it and it's a great first step at thinking about like an intersectional way that we can connect the the medical community the mental health community and the school education community to work better in concert um, with students right yeah. and so think about how many kids um, go to the doctor with tummy aches they're always having tummy aches they're always having tummy aches and get medical solutions to that right. problem rather than something that uh, helps them learn and develop skills and strategies um, to be able to to better manage the the negative effects of toxic stress right. right or imagine families get empowered with some of this information to think differently about their own child yeah. you know my, he's just a bad kid like i've heard plenty of parents say that about their own children who were struggling right, right. Um, as opposed to maybe being able to think about um, what is happening around my child and how can I help mitigate the effects of some of those of some of those circumstances right so from for me that's why it's so tremendously exciting I totally agree with you that like implementation is gonna be important it's not a silver bullet but I think it's a really important um, first step that then leads to the potential of lots of other steps bringing us um, you know things that we can really yeah really do to move the needle on changing the experience and the lives of a lot of these young folks who are so yeah. heavily impacted. No, absolutely. Um, definitely a good, uh, great first step, actually. And, you know, again, California leading the line because I'm sure there's no other state out there doing this. Um, so definitely shout out to Dr. Nadine Burke Harris um, for this idea. I'm interested in seeing where it goes. Yeah. Um, you know, I obviously um, the the world of education changes and and progresses and now we're at a place where we could talk about trauma and that means something you know when i first entered the profession that i mean i don't know what year it was in the profession before i even heard the term trauma uh, let alone trauma-informed care so we're getting there slowly but surely and hopefully uh, within you know a matter of years or the next generation of teachers you know to them this idea will be just like basic like yeah. oh yeah care plans duh yeah yeah uh, so before we before we end, I do want to say something, uh, Manuel. I just realized, um, you know, we have some we have some new uh, cards today we do. Um, on our evolving set, and yeah. and what we didn't prepare with our with our new evolving cards oh. was an extra card that kept That's blocking nice. the picture the <laughs> after we picked showing. up all the cards. Yeah. So, so I don't know. know you you want to tell everybody uh, so about this aspect? Of so we were trying to find a way to prop up the cards and. Long time ago, season yeah, one, like I suppose. Ago, right? um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we we're trying to find a way to prop up the cards, and I had this handy little picture frame, which was a gift from a student. Um, here I am pictured with a group of students who have since graduated, and they gave me this little frame from my classroom, and I keep it in my classroom. But when we are filming for all of the above, I take it from my classroom, and I use it as our little prop for holding up these cards. There we go. So uh, shout out to all the students on this photo. I'm not gonna say their names because I don't know that they necessarily want to be aired out um, on our lovely show. They, they probably would be fine with it, but um, yeah, that's our secret. Now the world knows. <laughs> all right, folks, that's it for today's Do Now. Up next will be our seminar segment about favorite teachers. Stay tuned.
All right, now it's time for today's seminar. And for today's seminar, we actually wanted to take a moment to discuss favorite teachers. Now, Jeff, when the show opens up, I normally introduce myself as your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And I do that tongue in cheek. That comes from like, you know, hip hop culture and this idea of being your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. And a lot of rappers have, have used that as a, a way of boasting about themselves. So tongue in cheek, I say, I'm your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. But I thought, it'd be nice for us to actually unpack a little bit about what it means to be one's favorite teacher and, and who our favorite teachers were growing up. So um, I'll start by talking just briefly about my favorite teacher or, or who I think of when that question um, gets asked of me um, in terms of who my favorite teacher was. And it definitely goes straight to my ninth grade English teacher by the name of Mr. Murray. Now, he was my favorite teacher um, for a few reasons. One reason is like that was the first teacher and actually probably the only teacher I had K through 12 who actually gave me a lot of like personal feedback and made me feel that I actually um, could do great things. So like when I would submit essays um, in that class, like his, his feedback to me um, was just remarkable in terms of making me feel like, like well, I'm actually pretty good at this. and. Um, when I was in 10th grade, I was failing my English class. I had a different teacher. Mm. I was failing on purpose. That's a whole nother story, but I was purposely getting an F in that class because wow. I was highly upset at that teacher and I was boycotting. I was like, whatever, I'm just not going to do anything in this class. And I would just sit there and not submit anything. Um, that teacher, I guess, reached out to Mr. Murray and um, was asking for help. And uh, Mr. Murray pulled me aside after school one day and sat me down and just asked me what was going on with me, what the problem was. And that simple, small ask was like revolutionary to me because nobody mm -hmm. had ever pulled me aside. Nobody had ever really checked in with me in that kind of way. I was always the sort of invisible student who got good grades and didn't really speak much and usually sat in the back of the class. And, you know, that was the first time I really felt that I was being seen directly by, um, by a teacher. I didn't give him an answer. I was just like, I don't know. But, um, but that really meant a lot. And that actually changed my trajectory in terms of um, getting myself together and getting through the challenges that I was having at that time in my life. And um, for that, I always think of Mr. Murray as like the one that helped me get to where I got. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, such, such a powerful, uh, powerful story, powerful example of what it means to be seen as a right. child, right? Um, so my story, in, in many ways, is actually very similar to yours. You were uh, failing tenth grade English too. I was not you. <laughs> I was not failing tenth grade okay. English, but my favorite teacher uh, was my fifth grade teacher, um, and at that time, her name was uh, was Miss Rothstein. Mm -hmm. um, she uh, so she either got divorced or got remarried or something. So her name now is Miss Star, and okay. I found out. So I was trying to find her uh, before we uh, before we shot this episode, and I. I was searching for Miss Rothstein and I was like, oh man, she must have retired, whatever, I couldn't find her. And then it just hit me one day, uh, sitting at home, that uh, she had changed her name. Hmm. Uh, so Miss Star, Marty Star, is teaching first grade now um, at the same school that I hey, had her. I know she's moved to, to different schools, but she's back there nice. uh, and teaching first grade now. So um, I'm sure there's a, an, a wonderfully fortunate group of first graders at uh, Capitol Hill Elementary in St. Paul, uh, Paul, Minnesota. Uh, but 
when I knew her, Miss Rothstein, um, was was just an incredible teacher. And as a young person, like I'm a pretty chill adult now, mm-hmm. uh, but as a young person, uh, really up until high school, like I was very hyper. I had a hard time sitting still in class. Mm-hmm. I had, uh, you know, teachers who uh, thought I should be on medication or should be in special ed even right. and uh, and so my parents tried hard to make sure I, I you know teachers understood that I had parents who cared about me and that they you know like they weren't gonna let me get railroaded by the system right. and also that I got teachers who could understand how to help channel my energy right and I was a smart kid right I was um, you know I, I knew a lot of stuff I could do a lot of stuff but I also was Um, you know, maybe sometimes a kid that might be hard to have in class. Uh, And what I really remember about Miss Rothstein's class is she was such a good teacher at helping to channel my strengths into Mm. things that could be successful Mm. uh, in class. And so one thing that I remember in particular is there was a time we had this project and I don't actually remember the details of the project, but um, I know what myself and a good friend of mine (laughs) decided to do was not what the project asked (laughs) us to do. We were were having a lot of fun making board games for some reason at that (laughs) point in school. And we would like design these three-dimensional parts of it and it was like very fun. Uh, and she allowed us to do that, to like make this board game and connect it to what we were trying to learn in class. And I just remember like that type of experience of being understood as a, as a person and being understood as someone with something to offer right. and someone who had a creative idea that wasn't trying to cause trouble, but just trying to like engage in a way that I could engage in that yeah. moment in time and her ability to see that, to value that, to still keep in mind the, you know, the importance of the content and things we were, uh, you know, I'm sure trying to learn at that point in time, but valuing who I was and the skills and, and strengths that I brought to the table. Um, and I just remember also really feeling understood and seen right. um, in her class and feeling like this is a teacher who who gets me and, and who can help me. Um, and that also happening at kind of a pivotal time in my life when, um, you know, when I was teetering on the edge of making some not very good choices for right, myself right. Uh, outside of school and um, and really seeing her as someone that was like, nope. You, this this being a good student and being you know yeah. this like nerdy intellectual that I would become, that's a good thing and let's cultivate that. Um, and so you know I, I loved her class and I, you know certainly will always be be grateful for for that experience. Yeah, and see that's that's interesting in the sense that like I don't remember much about the class yeah. of my ninth grade English class with my favorite teacher. Like I don't have a, a lucid memory of making board games or anything like that. Um, necessarily, but that the reality of remembering him reeling me in and seeing me and realizing that like the path that I was choosing to take by failing that English class and basically like wavering away from um, the path that he thought I should be on, um, you know, that really meant the world to me, like seriously. And I think everybody watching this, you know, when they 
think about their favorite teacher. That's one of those questions where you could ask pretty much anybody out there and they've got an answer for you. Yeah. You know, like I, yeah. whether they work in education or not, like they have an answer like, oh, Miss so-and-so, Mr. So-and-so. Um, so I don't know. Let's, let's think a little bit about like, what do you think are some of the uh, commonalities or some of the more common, um, I don't know, things that people point to when they when they tell the story about their favorite teachers. Because yeah. I think, you know, we see commonality in, in our stories in terms of like feeling seen and feeling valued by that individual teacher. Yeah. I don't know what other um, so links. I, that makes me actually think of, of something else that I that I remember mm -hmm. uh, from Miss Rothstein's class. And it and it also not really being about the the content necessarily right. we were learning but i remember there was one time where we the class like we kind of collectively messed up and mm. i want to say in my head that we had had a substitute like the day before mm. and it had just been like kind of wild and ridiculous yeah. and maybe like broke some things in the class like just stupid stuff we right. knew better and we messed up right and i remember her talking to us and you know some adults they, they get loud, they get, you know, angry or whatever and, right. and whatever. That has its own effect on kids, right? But I remember she talked to us and she, she got quiet hmm. and she got like very solemn, you know, and like talked oh, to man. us about how like when you know. she had more confidence in us than, than, <laughs> than I guess we deserve, right. right? And like, and she knows that we know better and she's just disappointed in us. And it was like the whole class was like, oh man, yeah, <laughs> like low, we, we messed up, <laughs> we let down, <laughs> like we just felt bad right. that we had disappointed her and because we knew she was right that we knew better right yeah. um and and so i think it's the it's the quality of the relationship right that lets right. an adult do that with young people where it wasn't with it wasn't that after she said that we thought oh she doesn't like us anymore mm -hmm. she she doesn't care about us anymore it was we understood she cared about us so much that this was not just about whatever thing got damaged in the classroom or whatever ridiculous behavior happened right. it was about like we're we're a community here and we care about each other and we did something that was like in violation of what's expected in that community right. and we knew better it wasn't a mistake right um and so uh so i think there's something about that like just the connection the relationship the belief uh in in uh, the young people being successful, right? right? That uh, that a teacher instills in a space that that's really powerful. Yeah, and actually that makes me think of my current favorite teacher in terms of the favorite teacher that's out there working and, and teaching today. And that's a teacher that teaches right across the hall from me, Mr. Parekh. Shout out, Mr. Parekh. Um, he's a math teacher and I say he's my favorite teacher because I see how he establishes a, a community of love and high expectations in his class and you know students every student I've had who's had Mr. Parekh speaks to like how transformative his his class is and it's never about the particular pedagogy of like the how he's teaching math or what you know materials he's using or anything like that it's really about that classroom community that he builds and establishes with super super high expectations and um, his style is just so so different than my style but just that that similarity of or that commonality of like really just loving the students and wanting to see the best of them and communicating it in such a way that the students believe it when you say it and they they step up to it so i always think to myself like man if i had math right now i'd want to be in prex class i just feel like that's a experience being in there um in the way he he draws everyone together um but it's also something that's difficult to i think sort of um 
try to, to define in such a way that other teachers can just like learn it you know in terms of raising next the next generation of teachers a lot of the stuff that made mr murray really stand out for me or or, or i'm sure that made uh your favorite teacher stand out to you a lot of these things are are things that aren't really necessarily something that you could just uh systematize in such a way in a teacher ed program to like instill in everybody so i think that's something that we have to sort of take a look at like yeah what's this mean so that's a really fascinating question I want to get into. But before we get into that, I just I just have a question for you. Does sure. that mean that Mr. Parekh is actually your favorite teacher's favorite teacher's favorite teacher? Well, see, <laughs> perhaps teacher cubed, cubed uh, perhaps. <laughs> but I know he is a lot of students' favorite teacher, and I might be his favorite teacher. So when I say I'm your favorite teacher's oh, favorite man. teacher, if your favorite teacher is Parekh, then you know that's like the. This levels to it, man. The square root of the cube. Ah, oh, we're flipping in and out of the matrix right now, man. I don't know what's uh, going on. Yeah, but uh, but back to your question. The yeah. shout out, Mr. Parekh. Yeah. That's that's yeah. high praise. Uh, yeah. So I look forward to hopefully meeting you and seeing your work someday. Um, but uh, I, to your to your point, I think um, I actually I wonder uh, actually about that question of can we teach some of these things? Right. So certainly there are for sure people in the world and definitely teachers are no exception. There are some folks who naturally gravitate more to the kind of relational aspects of the work and like that's their wheelhouse and they build great relationships with kids and maybe they're not even as deep of a content expert as other people, right. but that's how they get learning to happen, right? Um, so definitely we come to the table with varying degrees of skill set in that area. But I think for a long time we've assumed that, um, that folks can't learn uh, some of the competencies that people who are really skilled in that area have. And I would argue that there is probably an art to it, right? Like a, just an emotional... Yeah. way of being that uh you know probably means like look not everybody's gonna be the michael jordan of relationships right, uh right. <laughs> you know in in classrooms right but everybody can learn to pick up the ball and dribble and you know yeah. like shoot a free throw whether you make it or not right mm -hmm. um and i think that uh i i would put out there i have a theory mm -hmm. that the relational social emotional aspects of classroom teaching and pedagogy can be learned, it can be practiced, right? Like there are behaviors that can be observed and can at least be mimicked yeah. by others, right? Um, even if it takes you a long time to learn to do that, or even if it takes you, even if, if maybe it doesn't come naturally uh, the way it might for, for someone else, um, I, I don't, I think maybe that's an assumption we've made in our profession that actually is wrong. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think there's, I think there's kind of a large untapped um, area of, yeah. of learning in our profession about what it takes to be good that we perhaps haven't explored as much as we should. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And a lot of these things, you know, when I think about Mr. Murray, like it was such a simple thing that he did, you know, and I, I I don't see why anybody would enter the profession and not, you know, know or, or think to like check in with a student who, you know, did really was doing really well or is doing really well. And suddenly there's a dramatic change in that student's behavior academically or or in any kind of way. Um, you know, I think that's something that most teachers should be able to 
know or pick up on or, or you know that could be embedded in a teacher uh, training or a teacher education program in terms of doing those type of things and as far as the the overall this is the relational capacity of teaching and, and you know everybody out there and teaching uh, circles who goes out and speaks at conferences and does all these things they always harp on the importance of relationships it's about relationships it's about relationships and as cliche as that might be like it really is there's a lot of truth to it and and our YouTube channel for all the above I actually put up a little video uh, from my classroom about like 11, 11 tips for showing love and showing students that you care about them like just 11 basic things each and every day um, that you can do so check that out but I definitely think that um, the the foundation of all of that is if you are in the classroom you need to really care about the lives that are in front of you and there are there are teachers out there who simply don't care or they have um, particular biases or particular uh, mindsets like last episode when we talked about the the teacher that's suing because of he was fired for misgendering his student like mm -hmm. there are definitely teachers out there who they're not teaching from a place of love for everybody that's on their roster and they're coming in with um, whatever particular bigotry or whatever particular barriers they have to connecting with people from different worlds and different um, life experiences and those folks just need to not be in the classroom like it should be a, a, a prerequisite that if you are in the classroom you actually care about the younger people there and as long as that's there, I agree with you that there are ways that you can learn and pick up on different ways for utilizing that and building upon that so that every teacher, I mean, so that every student can feel loved and welcomed and seen in your classroom. Yeah. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, and I, I think also that being good at that, like being skillful, mm -hmm. manifests itself in very different ways, right? Oh, yeah. And so, you know, sometimes, I, I, see, I think sometimes there's like the stereotype of the nurturing grandmotherly type of figure, right? Yeah. Um, and that is definitely one manifestation of that. But, um, but you know, some it's interesting, right? Like some kids get that same kind of experience from like a really stern yeah. band director who Big like time. yells at the kids most of the Big time, right? Time. Um, or you get that from your, you know, your uh, swim coach who's blowing a whistle at the whole oh, yeah. pool for half a practice, right? Yeah. Um, but it's um, so it doesn't always look the same. It doesn't always feel the same. But that sense of being seen, that sense of connection, um, you know, is is so important. Um, and I, I totally agree with you that uh, for folks who perhaps feel like that's not part of the job description, like this is a huge red flag, right? right? Like that's, that'd be like a, you know, a, um, a carpenter saying like, well, you know, I'm, I'm good at everything except I don't use a hammer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I just don't believe in those just, hammers, man. I just, you know, it's not my wheelhouse, right? Like, eh, well, maybe this isn't the job for you, yeah. then, right? Like this is a core foundational part of of the work, right? And I right. think um, regardless of, of the variety of ways that it manifests, the best teachers that I know of all understand that, you know, and all know how to leverage that in their practice. Absolutely. So if you're watching this video, um, comment beneath the video. Let us know who was your favorite teacher growing up. And if you're listening to the podcast, um, when you get a moment, head over to our YouTube channel or our Twitter or our Facebook and let us know who was your favorite teacher and what was it about them that makes them your favorite. We definitely want to see um, what commonalities exist. And there's certainly other aspects of, of what makes a teacher your favorite teacher um, beyond the relational aspect, I'm sure. So so let us know. Drop a comment. Let us uh, continue on this discussion of being or, or, or who our favorite teachers were growing up. 
Jeff, anything you'd like to say to those uh, favorite teachers out there? Because some people who are watching are currently a favorite teacher of students that they have. I mean, I would say keep it up. I think, um, you know, there's this Maya Angelou quote, which I'm sure I'm going to like butcher now, but I'm going to try it. No pressure. <laughs> right. No pressure. Just get She right. says something to the effect of like, you know, people, people won't remember. They'll forget, you know, what you said to them and, and, and what you, you talked to them about right. um, over time, but they will always remember how you made them feel. Right. Mm -hmm. And whether that how you made them feel was like, I'm good at chemistry or whether it was like I'm a worthwhile person and someone yeah. sees me, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to that. So um, for those of you out there that are that are the person that's creating that for someone else, um, you know, uh, cheers and, uh, you know, serious props to you. Please keep it up. Our world, uh, it, it needs more of this. Absolutely. All right, that does it for today's seminar segment. Up next will be a class dismissed where we give some very special shout outs to folks doing great work in education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for class dismissed where we like to give shout outs to people doing big things in education. Now, Jeff, we just spoke about favorite teachers. And right now across the country, there are some favorite teachers being awarded the Milken Educator Award for their impressive work in and out of the classroom. So we want to give a big shout out to everybody out there across the nation who is currently being surprised with this $25,000 award from the Milken Family Foundation for the impressive work that they've done in their career so far in education. Now the Milken Educator Award goes to early and mid-career professionals for the awesome work that they've already done, but also for the promise of the excellent work that they'll be doing in the future as um, leaders in education and leaders in the classroom and leaders at their schools and districts. So shout out to all of you who are currently being surprised with this. I was surprised way back in the day, back in 2012 with the Milken Educator Award, one of the most memorable experiences of my life. And shout out to the Milken Educator Award family and network out there Keep doing the great work that you are doing. Yes, two thumbs up for all of you. Please keep it up. And folks, thanks for joining us today. We're at the end of our episode, but fear not. You can always find much more of our content, all of our content, in fact, on our website, which is aotashow.com. Again, that's aotashow.com. And we are on all of your social medias now, especially including Twitter. So we are at AOTA Show on Twitter and on Facebook. And we're at YouTube um, on youtube.com slash all of the above. Uh, so you can find us everywhere. We got podcasts, we got YouTubes, we got everything. We got all that. Click on it, share it, subscribe, like, friend, all that good stuff. You could say we have all of the above. All, <laughs> all the above, yes. Indeed. Bubble it in. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in, folks. We will see you next time.